Um, right, okay, we've been working through this series, Seven Deadly Sins, and uh, why are we doing it? I think uh, there are a number of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons, one of the primary reasons from my point of view, is that the Bible talks an awful lot about sin. It repeats it again and again, and so it is helpful for us to spend some time looking at the, the breadth, from a biblical point of view, of what the Bible considers, describes as sin, the issues that are behind it, and the remedy that is found in the Lord Jesus. The other reason is because I think that the issue of sin or the subject of sin is, is pretty much on the back burner uh, in lots of ways. We find it difficult to raise as a, an issue, even though the Bible talks uh, repeatedly about it, we find it difficult to raise, and when we do raise it, we tend to very often drift into some kind of caricature where sin becomes just the naughty thing that we do. Uh, it's become, if you like, a bit of a joke, and, and the idea of the seven deadly sins, which down through history, various theologians and thinkers, particularly around the Middle Ages, thought of uh, a way of capturing something of the breadth of the issues that, uh, of sin that the Bible displays. The seven deadly sins has become very much uh, a, a kind of theme for, well, for marketing campaigns as much as anything. Uh, and so I think you can certainly buy uh, ice creams through the seven deadly sins, and I'm not sure whether you can buy cars. There's been a variety of different things that you can buy through this means. We're coming to one which uh, is really important in our thinking, I think, particularly in the day in which we live. It's the issue of greed. 1986, Ivan Bosky was uh, a stock trader uh, who was giving the uh, inaugural address at uh, University College Berkeley's School of Business Management. Uh, he said this, greed is all right, by the way. I want you to know that I think greed is healthy. You can be greedy and still feel good about yourself. He was commending the idea of greed. In fact, um, that might sound really strange, but those of you who are old enough to remember the 1980s and the kind of upsurge of capitalism and the free, uh, free market and the kind of uh, from the loads of money kind of Harry Enfield character right the way through to the, the Ivan Bosky who subsequently uh, was uh, arrested and has paid hundreds of millions of dollars in fines and has spent some time in prison for insider trading uh, can remember that uh, we lived for a decade or so with greed, not just as something recognized, but as something embraced and something valued and something considered necessary for the good of our economy. It's fascinating. Yeah, no, that's a bad word to use. It's tragic actually, to see the nation that was primarily driving that are now fighting, as you well know, over uh, agreements on raising its borrowing because it is about to default on its borrowings, which will bring economic crisis if they cannot find an agreement for the whole of the world. We are living, really, aren't we, in the aftermath 
of all of that issue. That is how real this issue of greed is for us today. That is how current it is. We are living with the backlash of a commitment to that kind of life. But the problem is, it's not as though that was just a sort of decade or so philosophy of how to run our monetary system, which we can just jettison and, and pretend that we can move on to something else and live a different life. It's not that. It is rooted in something way deeper, isn't it? That has sprung out of what we are. It's not as though we stepped back and logically thought, actually, greed might be a good way to run an economy. We are that, and therefore, we decided that greed would be a good thing. Do you see the difference? It's the greed inside which ended up with us driving not just our day-to-day -day lives, but actually the whole Western economy on the principles of greed. It's a, it's a salutary consideration. Um, the reality as well is that greed has been an issue for us uh, culturally and historically right from the very, very beginning of time. But it has been a source of literature and thinking for centuries and centuries. 1924 right at the very beginning of uh, the movies, just to grab the movies as a picture. 1924, there was a film that was released called Greed. It was a silent movie. It won some awards, and it followed the uh, story of a dentist's wife who won the lottery and ended up in uh, tragedy, relationship tragedy, as a result of the lottery winnings, <laughs> 1924. Not much has changed in the world, has it? How many times do we see exactly the same story repeating itself, not as a story, but as a reality? And I would guess that the film written in 1924 called Greed is not, uh, was not dreamed up out of the ether, but was rather an observation on exactly the same thing going on way back then. So 1924, let's just get bizarre and get way out of even this world. Greed is the driving story behind Avatar, isn't it? Unobtainium, which actually, uh, we've got at least one engineer in the house, uh, unobtainium was historically uh, uh, used as a word to describe the perfect material in, in an engineering development. I think I'm right in saying that. And uh, unobtainium became the material that was being mined on the uh, imaginary planet Pandora. And the whole of that story is driven around what? Greed. The desperate greed of one race against another. We are living with the issue of greed as a constant. I don't think I need to tell you. I hope I don't that we, we must not think of greed just simply in the, the kind of big story. We know, don't we, we're honest enough with ourselves, hopefully, to know that it's also an issue that is going on. Or maybe not. Maybe some of us are thinking, actually, I don't face that issue. 
Let's have a little bit of uh, a look at this particular story that we're considering this afternoon. The story is fairly straightforward. It's about a young man who comes along to Jesus. And I think that we're going to, we're going to, well, we're going to look at this in three phases. Firstly, we're going to see that this is a picture of greed. Secondly, we're going to see the outcome. And thirdly, we're going to see the resolution. Okay. Firstly, we're going to see a picture of greed. So we've got this man who comes along. Just previously, in the previous few verses, we see Jesus um, really at the, the other end of the scale. We see a rich man, young man, coming to him now. He would be the kind of um, smartphone Armani uh, Ferrari driver of the day. You know, the kind of guy that everybody knew in the town. Everybody knew him. He was just so well known. He was the guy that everybody really wanted to be a friend of because he was the in guy. He was the celebrity of the town. Talk about a contrast just Previously, Jesus has been sharing some time playing and talking to and relating to the peasant children. They've been sat on his knees, been telling them stories, and he's been just making sure that everybody knows that he is here for everybody. So he's just spent some time with the peasant children. The next person who rolls onto the scene couldn't be further from the peasant children who were sat on his knee. This is the guy. He comes up to him and he says, just then a man came to him and asked him, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? What good thing must I do to get eternal life? That is a great question, isn't it? That is just a great question. On the face of it, Jesus has just been... Spending time with some little children, just the parents were standing around and they're just watching Jesus, sharing some time. And no doubt some of the parents were sat on the ground next to Jesus uh, as, you know, the kids are climbing over all of the adults and all of that kind of thing. And then right out the blue comes a dream question, you would think, for a teacher. Somebody who's teaching about uh, the message of the Bible and eternal life. This is just on a plate, isn't it? Somebody who comes along and just asks the number one question. How, what must I do to get eternal life? It's a conscious recognition, isn't it? And isn't it interesting? Here's this guy who, if you can picture in our current comparison... The Armani driving smartphone, uh, no, he didn't drive an Armani, no, he drove a Ferrari, didn't he? Yeah, the Ferrari driving, Armani wearing, smartphone using, geezer comes up and asks Jesus for something more than he already had. I find that interesting, don't you? Here's this man who recognises that there is more than just what he currently has. We're on a good track here, aren't we? This man is surely on the right journey. He recognises that there is something more. Maybe, just maybe, you're in exactly the same situation. Maybe you're 
I don't think anybody drives a Ferrari. If you do, you don't. You keep it quiet in your garage. But you, you, the reality is, compared to the Middle East uh, and the, the time around Jesus, we are all astoundingly rich. We are all astoundingly rich. So let, let's just put it in perspective. We are all rich. We are all uh, liberal uh, in terms of our ability to spend money compared to the people of Jesus' day. We, we would be, I guess, uh, financially mobile, relatively speaking. And maybe you're, on that, you're at that point of, of realising, do you know what, I've got, I've got stuff. I've got stuff. I've got material possessions. In fact, I've got material possessions sufficient for my needs. Because I've now moved on to the stage of asking, what must I do to gain eternal life? Maybe we're beginning to sound a lot more like this guy now. He's, he's got enough. I'm sure that how much is enough, just a little bit more, was definitely the case for him, I'm sure. He would always be driving for just a little bit more. But he had reached a point of relative satisfaction because he is now saying, what more? How can I gain eternal life? He's got an eternal perspective. Jesus replies, surprisingly, surprisingly, Jesus replies by saying, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. In other words, he's saying, I, I am not going to turn over everything that God has declared to this world. The reality is that the same way of gaining eternal life is consistent as it always has been. It is not a matter of possession. It is a matter of obedience. It is a matter of commitment and, and the demands for eternal life means keep the commandments. You know that, don't you? You know that? God is still good. I'm not here changing stuff. There's a lot, there's more that we could go deeper into that, but at least that is what Jesus is saying. The man's response is, well, which ones? Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false witness. Uh, Honour your father and mother and love your neighbour as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? I find that fascinating in two ways. Firstly, that he is able to say that. And secondly, that Jesus does not condemn him for saying it. Isn't that remarkable? Jesus says you've got to keep all the commandments. Now, in replying, the man, I'm sure, is not saying, I have never sinned. <laughs> but he's given us another window into what he's like. Because you see, this guy who is uh, successful, financially successful, is also morally consistent. 
He is morally good. You look at him and you would think, there's a good guy. So not only are you looking at him thinking he's successful, he's got all of the stuff, and uh, he's, he's also somebody who you would consider to be a good person. If you like, this is the ideal candidate for heaven. This is the ideal candidate for eternal life. It's the kind of person that you would look at and you would say, he's got it. Surely this guy is the one. And then Jesus replies. If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great, he had great wealth. What a tragedy. He went away. I think that they are some of the most uh, powerful and disturbing words in the whole of the Bible. He's so close, and yet he went away. But doesn't it make you think, surely this man, he's morally upright, he's consistent, he's able to say, look, I, in general terms I keep the commandments, why, doesn't Jesus, why does Jesus make the demand of him that he has to sell everything? Does that mean that if I become a Christian, that every Christian is going to be told by Jesus right now, go and sell everything? That's the demand. If you want to be a Christian, the first thing that you've got to do is just sell everything, and then that's fine. Not at all. Not at all. There are certainly pictures in the Bible of people being liberal with their, with their wealth. Absolutely. But do you see what's going on here? Jesus is speaking to the man. And he is putting his finger on the real issue. He's putting his finger and saying, the issue is this. You have accumulated. You have accumulated wealth. You have accumulated moral success. And now you want to accumulate eternal life. You want to gather that. You want to gather that. And you want to gather that. It sounds like you want it all for you, don't you? It sounds like eternal life for you is, for, is something for you to gain. In fact, isn't that the first question that the man asks? I've accumulated all of this possession. I'm morally superior now. How do I gain eternal life? And there's the issue. The man is saying, I consider eternal life another possession for me to accumulate. What a tragedy. And the, re and the way that Jesus pinpoints that is by saying, right, if you think that living in relationship with me is about accumulating, you're wrong. So let me test it, or rather let me show you. Get rid of everything that you've accumulated. And come 
and follow me. That's, that is probably one of the most missed bits, I think, of this little story. Jesus doesn't say, go and sell everything and follow God. <laughs> He's saying this, go and sell everything. Get rid of everything that you are relying on, everything that you have accumulated, everything that is satisfying you. Go and get rid of it and swap all of that for relationship with me. Come and follow me. And the man said, whoa, no. There's the picture of greed. So what is the problem of greed? The problem is this, I think. We live with a mindset of the add-on God. God is an add-on. God is an add-on when we've reached a level of comfort. You know, greed, you say, well, I'm not, I'm not driving a Ferrari. I haven't got an Armani suit. You know, I'm just comfortable. I'm just comfortable. And what if God said, right, I'm going to strip you of everything? What if God said to me, I'm going to strip you of everything? As soon as God says that, as soon as that is the message that comes about across from this, we realize actually how much we hold on to those things around us that give us security. How much we hold on to those things around us which give us identity. How much we are greedy people. We just hold on to it. And we consider God in exactly the same way. God is a commodity. He's a commodity to get eternal life. That's where this young man was. You know, I've got the possessions now. I've got the moral acceptability. Now what about eternal life? How do I get eternal life? Because that's another thing that I want. I realize I need some more. I realize I need some more. Now how do I get it? Thomas Aquinas, way back, said this. Greed is a sin against God inasmuch as man condemns things eternal for the sake of... Of temporal things. He condemns eternal things for the sake of temporal things. That is greed. It's saying, I will not let go of the temporary things for the sake of the eternal things. That's the man's problem, isn't it? Tragedy. Go and sell everything. Now, let me just suggest to you. Here's the bargain. In the cold light of day, here's the bargain. Eternal life. That's not limited by years. Eternal riches. Eternal relationship. Eternal purpose. Eternal life, Jesus says. Or a few years with a few things. And this man has decided the few years with the few things. He says, I ain't going to let go of that. We do that, don't we? That is the problem. So we've seen a picture of it. The problem is that we will not sacrifice 
the temporary things for the eternal. We hold on to them. What's the solution? Where is the solution in this? Does it mean that all of us have to go away and just get rid of stuff? I don't think so. As Jesus goes on to say, he uses a picture to explain to his disciples. Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's hard. How hard is it? You might ask. How hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? He doesn't say it's impossible. He says it's hard. Well, tell me how hard. It's about as difficult as getting a camel through the eye of a needle, Jesus says. That's about how difficult it is. How difficult? Shoving a camel through the eye of a needle. That's how difficult it is. In other words, in human terms, it is impossible, isn't it? It is impossible. And that's the point. Because every one of us, you and me, we will, by nature, hold on to things. We cannot let go. We always hold on to securities around us. We always hold on to the things that we can see. We always put our security in the now and not in the eternal. It is impossible. We are all rich. We are all grabbed by the sin of greed. We might not see it, but we are when we consider taking everything away. And that was the man's opportunity to see. We might be saying, I want eternal life. And here's a real challenge to you this afternoon, folks. We might be saying, I want eternal life. But do we want it as a commodity? Do we want it as an add-on? The God give me a good life now and then give me a better life in eternity. And if the cost of a life in eternity is a tough time now, then I'm not interested in eternity. If we say that, we are saying that God is a commodity. Jesus said, not pointing us to eternal life. Jesus didn't come and point us to eternal life. He said this, come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, eternal rest. He didn't say, look, I'm here, I'm in this world, and I'm saying, "If if you do this, you'll get eternal life. He didn't say that. He said, Come here. I am the source. I am the means. I am eternal life. I am eternal life. It's not like he's saying, just do this and you'll get it. He's saying, come to me. He said it another way. I am the way. I am the way. It's not like I'm pointing to the way. I am the way. And the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Through me. What does that mean? Something more wonderful than we could ever imagine. 
It means this. That eternal life. And this is the hope. This is the final phase in this. Eternal life is not about Jesus pointing us to it. It's about relationship with him that makes for eternal life. It is relationship. That's what the man missed. Jesus offered him relationship. He said, come and follow me. Come and be in relationship with me. And the man said, no, because I want my house and I want my wine cellar and I want my servants. Or for us today, I want my job or I want my uh, three weeks holiday or whatever it might be. Whatever it is that is causing us to take our minds off Jesus as true relationship. As the one who says, come to me and I will give you rest. And that changes everything, doesn't it? Because it says that eternal life is not about possession. It's about person. Eternal life is worthwhile because Jesus is there. That's the only thing that makes eternal life worthwhile. If Jesus was not part of the picture portrayed in the Bible of eternal life, it would not be worthwhile going. But he is. He is at the very centre He is the source and the focus and the purpose of our existence. And he says, come to me, be in relationship with me. And that will just make everything else just seem so small. There's a great picture in Pilgrim's Progress. We'll close with this. Pilgrim goes to a house called the Interpreter's House. While he's in the Interpreter's House, he sees various pictures, various uh, images that gives him an idea about what the message of the Bible is. He sees a man who is raking around in the dirt for little trinkets. And behind him, all the time, is a crown ready to be placed on his head. But he's got his eyes down and he's got his eyes fixed on the muck. And he's scrabbling around in the muck for what little he can find when there is so much more available. And Jesus says this, are we going to continue to scrabble around in the muck? The muck of riches Or are we going to come into relationship with him through Jesus?